Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Desgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Raj podcast. And what is this a podcast of? It's a podcast of happiness and wellness and amazing people doing amazing stories that just kind of pump you up. And yes, there is a sprinkling of medicine here. I didn't forget about medicine. And today we're talking to a very special person who helped me become the doctor I am today and was one of my very close friends when I was in my training uh, during residency. And his story starts from physical therapist to flying planes. We just got to hear this story. So before I introduce him, you know how this goes. Uh, let's read his bio. So Dr. Shoemaker received a BS in physical education with an exercise science specialization from Calvin College in 1996. In 1999, he earned his Doctor of Physical Therapy degree from Slippery Rock University, I love that name by the way, and earned his PhD in Interdisciplinary Health Sciences from Western Michigan University in 2012. He was board certified in geriatric clinical specialist by the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialists from 2002 to 2022. His practice has been focused in cardiopulmonary and geriatric rehabilitation across multiple practice settings, including acute care, long-term acute care, long-term care, subacute care, and outpatient care. He currently practices in the cardiothoracic critical care setting at Corwell Health Meyer Heart Center. Dr. Shoemaker is an active member of his professional association. He currently serves as a delegate to the APTA House of Delegates and has served in the roles of legislative director, vice president, and president of the Michigan chapter of the APTA. Dr. Shoemaker's research interests span 44 peer-reviewed papers, five textbook chapters, 28 peer-reviewed platform slash poster presentations, and seven continuing education presentations, workshops, including cardiopulmonary rehabilitation, health policy, and the use of stimulation in professional and interprofessional education. And that's not stimulation, even though that sounds cool. It's simulation. <laughs> uh, Dr. Shoemaker is also an instrument-rated uh, commercial pilot flight instructor, and instrument flight instructor. He serves as an instructor pilot, check pilot, and mission pilot who flies a search and rescue and homeland security missions for the Civil Air Patrol, the auxiliary of the United States Air Force. And with that being said, Mike, Dr. Shoemaker, how are you doing? <laughs> oh, Dr. Scoopta, uh, I'm doing great. What a honor to be here. I know. Well, you know, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, I will incorporate our, our history during our questions over here. But I, I think this is going to be the meet and greet for everyone else, which is, you know, your journey. I mean, how did it begin? Especially, you know, you got your physical education with that exercise science specialization from Calvin College. Was the natural next step to be a physical therapist or was there other tempting things to do? 
Yeah, actually, the exercise science specialization was a highly intentional step toward being a physical therapist. So in high school, and we can get, we can get into the flying part of things, but up until about junior year in high school, I was sort of like had my sights set on the Air Force Academy uh, and becoming a pilot. But as high school progressed, I started getting more and more into swimming. And of course, with swimming comes uh, shoulder problems. Oh, and so I ended up getting referred to go see a a physical therapist. And I knew nothing about that. Um, However, about that same time, we were also doing anatomy and physiology in a biology class that I was taking. And I, I think for the first time, at least that I can remember, or that it was so, you know, right in front of me, was the applicability of learning in school to just things that I was interested in. Like, you know, I could just sort of, just the basic anatomy to be able to start to, even at a high school level, start to understand kind of what was going on with my shoulders and what does that mean? And this uh, active sort of rehabilitation approach to, to getting better and allowing me to continue to swim. Um, it just grabbed me. And I'm not sure, I think that's about the extent to which I understood that I wanted to do physical therapy. I didn't even explore really any other professions. I think I, I think I went and observed a physiatrist for like a half a day. <laughs> um, and, and that was it. Like, I just, it was like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Right. So it wasn't even this reasoned approach, but I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So by the time I got to Calvin, I was like, well, this, this whole idea of taking classes and stuff you're interested in, like, this is cool. Like I, you know, and I was always good in yeah. school, but like, I really, I think, found my passion in learning, you know, at that point. And so exercise science was just the coolest. I mean, there were kinesiology classes and exercise physiology classes and, um, you know, more anatomy class. I mean, it was just, it was so applicable and I was interested in everything I was doing. So, yeah, so that was, that was actually a very intentional step as I was preparing myself to get accepted to, to PT school. So. Well, you know, being a physical therapist, and I know I'm downplaying because you do so much more, and we'll get to those shortly. I mean, you could kind of dabble into many different aspects of medicine, whether it's going to be outpatient, whether it's going to be dizziness, whether it's going to be you name it. Now, you actually went to the route of thoracic, cardiothoracic critical care. We're talking about some of the sickest patients in the hospital. So how did you pivot towards that, of all things? Well, you play a role here, so we'll get to that. But um, early on, I had been focused, very focused in in geriatrics. Um, and as I was kind of progressing through some things early in my career, I found myself at an outpatient clinic where I was split between doing three days a week outpatient geriatrics and two days a week pulmonary rehab. Um, and the pulmonary rehab was new to me. And I'm like, okay, I got I to gotta figure this stuff out. And I went to a, a AACVPR conference out in Long Beach. And I just, I was blown away. I'm like, this, this is cool. Like it started tapping into those early physiology roots that I, that really, I just always had a passion for. And so, you know, pulmonary rehab is kind of where I was, you know, I got connected with you and we're working with Dr. Will, we're in the pulmonary hypertension clinic. And, you know, once you start to see and really get uh, the right ventricle, right? And pulmonary vascular function, it just, everything starts to fall into place, right? Like, and I tell my students this, you know, undergrad physiology programs, they just leave out the RV um, and the pulmonary circulation. It's like this afterthought, but like when you start clinically working with these patients, you realize like, it's all about the RV and pulmonary 
affects their circulation, right? So, so that just sort of set me up and we were doing research in, in pulmonary hypertension, but pulmonary hypertension is, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's a relatively rare group of patients so from a research standpoint, hard to recruit people. And I'm like, well, we've got a heart failure clinic and there's a lot of patients there. So I started to pivot to heart failure. And then of course you go from heart failure to, you know, what am I going to do next? And I, and I, I wasn't in clinical practice for about two years while I was working on my PhD. Cause it just, I couldn't do everything. And, uh, and so then when I got done with my PhD, I'm like, all right, where do I want to go? Um, and I'm like, I want to, I want to get really into acute care. And so I, I started getting back into acute care and then that just sort of naturally progressed to, to getting into the, to the critical care setting. And, you know, then you just, it all just clicks, right? I'm like, okay, this is, this is where everything makes sense. Yeah, and, so. and I'm glad you went to it because I'm going to ask you some critical care questions today, you know, just to put you on your A game. But <laughs> let, let, let me ask you this. And like, you know, you're going forward. I, I love that you're getting the PhD. You got this awesome clinical desire in basic physiology. So where did you get that research and statistics drive? Because I know we always joke that I asked you the other day, you know, hey, are you a statistician? Because you really know those numbers well. And we became super buds because you were recommended by one of my mentors, Dr. Wilt, as, you know, knowing to do research. So where did you get that drive from with all the other things going on in your life, you know? So it's interesting. So in undergrad, I I took a stats class because that was a prerequisite for PT programs. Um, So I took a stats class and I was like, this is kind of cool. But he was so heavy and math based. And then as part of the exercise science class, I took a, a measurement class, I think is what it was called, but it really was measurement statistics. And so then I took that statistics base that I had, but then it was sort of applied, you know, to physical fitness testing. And it was statistics applied in a way where I'm like, wait a minute, I get this. This really makes good sense. And so then I, you know, again, like when you're interested in something, it just makes it a whole lot easier to thrive, right? So, and then we get to PT school and my my PT program had a really strong um, statistics part of the curriculum. And so I came out of PT school feeling pretty good about statistics. And, but then I'm like, well, what do you do with this? And, you know, getting into research really early on, one of my mentors was like, hey, this might be a great fit for you. You should be on our outcomes committee for, you know, what was then Spectrum Health at the time. And one Friday morning a month, I got to go to a meeting with the outcomes committee. And we would sort of discuss like different sort of clinical outcome projects we wanted to work on. And, you know, of course, there was then a need for applying statistics to some of those things. And, you know, the rest is history. Like that was some (laughs) of the early handful of projects that I worked on before we met. Um, Yeah. So that I think that's kind of where that all Well, I like where you ended that one, which is going to be, you know, I'm excited for this question. Do you remember even how we met? And I'm going to kind of reference a specific, you know, uh, uh, you know, topic of uh, the research we did. But I want to hear how you how you remember it. Actually, I'm not totally sure. I can't remember whether it was specifically because of the pulmonary hypertension project. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I think it was because you were working with some med students and they needed something to work on from a research standpoint. And then that's where, where Jeff Wilt was like, Hey, you know, cause he was the pulmonary rehab director for the pulmonary right. rehab at the time. So he's like, Hey, you know, go, go meet with this, this Mike Shoemaker guy. I think I remember actually 
the early emails probably were with Kate Merriweather. Um, uh, we'll mention her. We have another another question. Yes. Here. So <laughs> I think she was sort of like the leader of that band and had yeah. reached out to me. And then we had set up a meeting to then meet. Because I had I had a, a pulmonary outcomes database. And I think that's that was our first project was like, hey, let's look at this database and see if there's any you know queries that that kind of make sense. So I think that was it. But well, you know what? You're a hundred percent right. And I would say, I remember when I first met you, I'm like, are you sure this is the PT guy? He sounds like he should be one of the, the doctors over here. He was, I, I just love the way you presented yourself. I love that you were so much more than what your title was. But I would say that the, if you ask me what research kind of niches me to you, I, I love this title. Exercise training in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. And of course, on the title there, it's, it's our guy, Dr. Will, Jeff Will. And I just want to give a quick shout out. He was such an awesome mentor. And he's one of the reasons I went into pulmonary critical care. And I only and I wish him the best. And he was one of the people in Grand Rapids that was really geared towards, you know, pulmonary arterial hypertension. But yeah, that project was awesome. It probably is safe to say that's probably where you and I both really grew up as researchers, right? Because that yep. was that was getting into the big time, right? We had a grant that we had to apply for. Yeah. Uh, competitive uh foundation grant that we had to apply for. And you know, this is relatively high risk, you know, from a, a patient safety standpoint, right? Because yeah. there was so little data on exercise in that patient population at that time. Yeah, this was great because I remember that project got presented in the American Thoracic Society. I'm still an internist and wow, we went to ATS, dude. Yeah, that was awesome. No, definitely. So if I had to pick one of my uh, favorite, you know, peer reviewed collaborations, I'm thinking about all the topics. So that's the one, my, the first one we did together. I really liked the one we did. And in this case, one of, on the title, I do see Kate Mayer on it and it's does walking improve outcomes in patients undergoing pulmonary rehab. And what I want to say about that, Mike, and I'll, I'll give it to you is that, you know, one of the big pillars of good health right now is just walking more. And they're saying that and there's research just saying, Hey, whether it's going to be a set amount of steps or just going, not using the elevator, it's such a big thing. And we were a little ahead of our times with that, with that topic. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, totally. That that came out of that database that uh, you know that we started looking at, and I think one of the questions I had, you know, and all good research questions come out of clinical experience, which is why I'm so intentional about remaining in clinical practice, even though you know my my full time job is is teaching and which includes research, but you just can't do teaching and you can't come up with great research questions if you're not active clinically. And I think that was a great early example and lesson because, you know, as I'm, I'm working in this, in this pulmonary rehab program, I'm like, patients go on the bike and they go on the treadmill and they're on the new step. And it's just like, you know, I kind of feel like walking is far more functional. Walking is far more feasible for people to do at home yeah, or feasible for them to continue to do after they're discharged from pulmonary rehab. And I kind of just got to know that like, is more walking as opposed to other forms of exercise associated with outcome, which it appeared to be right. Yeah. And, then, and then I just sent you that other article that just came out in the uh, physical therapy journal last week um, that essentially says, you know, that same thing that walking is at least as good as any equipment based exercise you might do with patients with lung disease. So 
that was kind of cool to kind of come full circle at around the same time we were just starting to talk about doing this podcast. And, you know, anytime I talk about any pulmonary disease, COPD, cystic fibrosis, you know, pulmonary fibrosis, I mean, one of my main things that just, you know, helps my patient feel better. I love to be on top of it early is always sending them to pulmonary rehab, physical therapy, occupational therapy. They, they, they make a difference in people's lives. And you don't let me people don't realize that. Yeah. But before I I want to make sure that a big shout out to Kate Merriweather, who I want to let you know is now this amazing, like, you know, gynoc surgeon. And no, she was on the podcast too. And it's amazing how Jeff Wild, Kate Merriweather, all the people we're associated with are just, man, they're just amazing people. There's one more person I want to mention next, but, um, you know, there's always a project you wish you could take to the next level. Like, you know, I'm glad we started, but let's take it to the next level. I look back and the title was, response to pulmonary rehab looking at obstructive versus interstitial lung disease i mean what was our thought process around that time how did you come up with that title how did we know to, to think about that and it's such a great project i wish we took to another level oh man i actually i have to i think that was instigated by you i think you sort of took a a liking to pulmonary fibrosis I mean, obviously, I think you were an internal medicine resident at the yes. time, right? Yes. And I don't I don't know actually if you knew pulmonary medicine is what you were gonna get into or not, but obviously with Jeff Wiltz as a mentor, you're kind of condemned to it. Cause if you watch <laughs> I mean, if you if you watch that guy yeah. do his thing, you're like, I wanna be that guy, right? So of course. Yeah. So there was something, you know, something about pulmonary fibrosis, I think, that you were fascinated by. And I think again. Good research questions come from clinical practice where you're like, man, these these patients struggle, right? Yeah. They're on they're on higher flows of oxygen. Oh, and, of course. You know, you sit there and just watch them with their respiratory rate, low tidal volume as they're just trying to move as much air as they can with their fibrotic lungs. And um, you're like, oh, man, they're these people, they're working hard in pulmonary rehab. And what's the yield on that effort, you know, yeah. on their half? So yeah, that was a cool one. Um which one would I want to take yeah. farther? Well, I think we almost did. So yeah. the other name on that pulmonary hypertension paper we did was, was Dr. Ron Udice, right? You He's know, from UCLA, wasn't he? Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, what, what a rock star. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we connected with him at ATS and we're like, hey, we're planning on doing this. And, you know, he's already like, yeah, well, I've been doing that. <laughs> you remember that? Like he had That's this. so funny. <laughs> they were in the middle of like doing a much bigger study. That is right. That's and, right. Yep. And I actually don't know how we got connected. Did we just email him out of the blue with a question? I really or, don't know how we connected. Or with he, him. maybe I think he was using some patients from the study in the broader picture of the study. And he invited us to come down and discuss and see where we're going. But I knew that it was, there was a collaboration going on early. Yes. And yeah. so, you know, then, you know, he was kind of was working with us on this, but then there was that, it was an NIH grant or a, a national heart and lung blood Institute multi-center study that we then got invited to oh, be a part right. of. Yeah. And then it didn't get funded, which totally if that got funded, I don't, I don't know. Like it's, it's fascinating to think like we, I, we might be in a different place if that study knows. Got funded. So, yeah. Um, so that's the one I wish we could have taken to the next level because some of the stuff we were talking about doing 
in that study, you know, some non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring and there was some other really cool stuff we were talking about doing with yeah. that, with that level of funding to uh, study it. So th- that's, that's the one that got away. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hey, before I give you some physical therapy questions, I just want to acknowledge one more person on that previous study. We we're just talking about, about, you know, pulmonary rehab obstructive versus, uh, you know, interstitial ILDs. Tom Summerfeld was on that study and Tom was still one of my still one of my best friends, an amazing statistician, plus much more. So, you know, when I think of that, the core, our core Justice League, our core Avengers, it's <laughs> it's, it's got to be Tom and Jeff Wild and Kate Merriweather and, and me and you are heading up the back. So no, those are those are the good old days. I miss all you guys. You know, <laughs> wouldn't it be fun if the band got together and came up with one last blast. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So now put on your, your clinical hat, dude. So I got right. some, I kind of like talk to my peeps here at USC, kind of what kind of questions should I ask Dr. Shoemaker when it comes to physical therapy? So they wanted your opinion on this. I know they're going to listen to this. So number one, in talking about cardiac patients in the ICU, and we're going to include post-surgical patients who had cabbage, which is coronary artery bypass grafting, valve repair, aortic dissection repair, or have LVADs, left ventricular assist devices or ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. How to spell those out for the people who know what they were. When should a physical therapy be involved? I think right from the beginning, because like at our, at Corwell, at our health system, a lot of these patients, there's going to be a PT order just by default, right? Right out of the gate. And then we're going to go look at that chart and then start making some decisions about, okay, is this person ready? Um, we can kind of talk through what, what those kind of steps and criteria are. Um, but we're going to, we're going to go through kind of a, a checklist and figure out, you know, what is this person ready? Does this make sense? Or do we just punt? We'll follow, yep. um, you know, whatnot. Obviously there's, there's some times where it's, it's pretty straightforward that, that there's just no need to engage us, right? If somebody's there and they still have an open chest, um, if they are still sedated and paralyzed, yep. if, they're heavily sedated and their target RAS is, you know, three and South, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there's really not much for us to do there, but to have us engaged so that we can follow along so that the minute that they're ready, I'm going to say sufficiently stable, right? Cause almost by definition, these aren't stable patients, right? It's That's the why they're on the unit. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, so sufficiently stable that the risks associated with mobility are far outweighed by the benefits of mobility. And so, yeah, I, I think as early as possible, and then we can follow along with the team and then figure out when it's a, a good and right time to jump in. So. so what about this? I mean, what if the patient is mechanically ventilated? So I know like, you know, people who rotate through the ICU or, or post or rotating through post-op ICU places. I mean, is that going to be a deterrent? You know what I mean? That they're on the mechanical ventilator or is there times that you work with them on the vent? Oh man. Uh, so I'll start by saying, um, there's almost no device that a patient is on. That's a contraindication to PT intervention. So let's start okay. there. There may be some devices and the way the patient's cannulated, you know, either it's femoral cannulation, which gets tricky because it's difficult to sit somebody edge of bed because of the hip flexion piece or the insertion site isn't sufficiently stable. So, okay. But but it's not the device itself. So when it comes to vents, like, you know, 
geez, events all day long, right? <laughs> um, I mean, we walk patients on vents. So, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So the ventilator itself isn't the issue. It's really the patient's stability. So then we look at what level of vent support do they need? Um, and so most of the guidelines that are out there, and these are fairly conservative, would be, you know, if somebody has an FiO2 greater than 60%, sure. if, if they got a PEEP greater than 10 you know, those are usually kind of the, the, the hallmark standards, right? Sure. So that if they're higher than that, that just means that, you know, if things don't go well during a rehab session, you don't have a lot of room to escalate care, right? You need the buffer. You need the yeah. buffer. And, and yep. you know, if you're at a center without ECMO, those, those more conservative values probably make sense, right? Because okay. that's all you got is the ventilator and the patient would have to be transferred out if things got worse. Whereas if you're at a a more experienced center that has ECMO and all that other stuff, and you have a team that's really progressive and supportive of early mobility, you could you could push those boundaries. I mean, we see pe- patients with a PEEP greater than 10. Um, we see patients with an FiO2 above 60, but then we start having better conversations about, okay, sure. like how's this patient been? What's their trend and things like that. But so it's not, it's not the ventilator. It's more what are the settings in the ventilator that are reflective of the patient's stability? And I, and I, I like what you just said. And for those who don't know, ECMO is kind of like dialysis of the lung, right? And I see what you're saying is if you're in a very progressive center, I mean, if they're getting their blood cleaned of the CO2 and you're putting in that oxygen, it really is irrelevant of what the vent settings are because you're resting the lung at that time. So you right. may have different criteria, you know what I mean, if you really want to move that patient. But of course... I'm sure you're going to say it a thousand times. It's it's individualized. Yeah. Yep. So I so I was reading, you know, about how to um, how was the mindset of most physical therapists going into you know an ICU setting, and I saw this quote: "You want to create a culture of mobility. How do you create a culture of mobility with your colleagues and the people in the ICU? I mean, it, it has to start from the top. Um, it has to be from administration down and it has to be baked in to the way we do things as a team, right? So fairly early on, I mean, we're probably now, I'm not totally sure, but I think we are probably easily 10 to 12 years at Corwell Health into the ABCDE bundle thing, right? And this idea that, hey, this all starts with thinking we've got to reduce sedation as soon as we possibly can with these patients. Because if we keep them sedated, they're laying there, you know, every day down is at a minimum three, probably way more than that days to regain what they lost. You know, that was, that was an initiative on behalf of, of administration and the leadership and, and, and the medical leadership to say, this is something we value and something we're going to do. And so that, that drives everything, you know, to where, you know, like, hey, oh, patients on vasopressors, you know, so what? Like there are some institutions where you're like, oh, this person needs vasopressors, not stable. For us, it's like, yeah, they're on vasopressors and let's have a discussion with a nurse. And yeah, they're, they're <laughs> probably going to get have orthostatic hypotension. They probably do need an increase in their pressors to support seated activity. And the nurses are like, sweet, dude, let's go. Right. Like, <laughs> um, and I, I have to just say it's really yeah. driven by the nursing team. And we have nurses who truly value getting patients up and moving. And within that culture, it's, you just can't help but succeed. So I love that. And and so 
but it's kind of like still kind of cascading on that. So of course we talk about being aggressive, trying to get the patient going. Now, are there some standard tools, you know, scoring systems that you look at, or is it more just clinical gestalt saying, hey, I have a great nurse on board, the culture is right, let's get going? Or do you have tools that you use, whether it be to start or to assess or to stop? What are some gener- some popular ones that you've used? Or yeah, so there's a uh, an acronym called MOVE that I'm trying to think the name off, off the top of my head. Um, that was proposed by somebody. It stands for myocardial stability, oxygenation, vasopressors, and engagement. Oh, nice. Um, and so like, like, (laughs) you know, we'll get into this, but I love checklists, right? So I'm like, oh, this really makes sense. And then, you know, as I started sort of internalizing that and, and trying to adapt that to practice and different patients and, you know, what is the criteria I really need to look at? I I kind of adapted that to La Moved or L moved, um, you know, so just looking at labs, looking at trends, looking at the values, you know, cause a, an abnormal value is not necessarily a problem in and of itself, unless it's extreme. Yep. Right. And trends matter. You know, if something is trending in the wrong direction and a, nobody knows what's going on or B, nobody's done anything to intervene. Well, okay, it's cool. Like that's a stopping point, but if it's not, then great, let's move on. You know, my car stability um, you know, obviously somebody who's, who's got active infarction and elevated troponins. Okay. You know, it's a full stop at that point, you know, other things like rhythms, like there's abnormal rhythms all day long in these patients. Right. So you wouldn't say, well, I got an abnormal rhythm. So I can work with them. It's what is the abnormal rhythm? Are we aware of it? And is it being addressed? Right. So that'd be the myocardial stability piece, the oxygenation piece we talked about. And, and obviously trending matters there and setting matters. Right. So mm-hmm. You know, patient on BiPAP on the unit. Yeah, yeah fine. We'll work with them, right? Because <laughs> they're on the unit, right? The team is there and they're in the process of getting stabilized. But a patient who gets put on BiPAP on the floor. Oh, yeah. You know, they're going in the wrong <laughs> direction. They're probably going to the unit. And so that's not the time to jump in and do something because they're still figuring stuff out. Um, I love that. No, this momentum. Where is the patient's momentum going? You know, I, lo- I love. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna start using that momentum because so, I mean inertia like that. Yeah. There's a there's an important element to that, right? That it's not just a trend, but like it takes an intervention to overcome the inertia of that physiologic decompensation. Yeah, so, and, then, and then we look at vasopressors. With, yeah, and um, just making sure that being on a vasopressor, multiple vasopressors isn't necessarily a problem. Is the dosage escalating, right? Recently, like, is this person yeah. going south? Um, engagement, you know, obviously we don't just sit patients who are completely obtunded and comatose. We need them to have a chance to actively participate. Um, and they can't be too agitated either because then you got safety issues, right? Uh, they're just yep. they're edge of bed. They're pulling stuff out. They're trying to, to leap off the edge of the bed. And, and so it's got to be Goldilocks on engagement. It's got to be just right. Um, and then devices. And again, it's not what device, it's what's the device insertion and how stable is that device? You know, I had a patient the other day who I had to, to not sit edge of bed because they were on PERT. So they were on the uh, renal replacement therapy and uh-huh. um, their subclavian catheter for that was was bleeding. They had a lot of active oh, bleeding at that site. Okay. Like, you know, skip that. Like, I don't. Yeah, I'll um, just pass on that. <laughs> yeah, like it's not stable. It's not that the yeah. pert is a problem, right? Oh. I can mobilize people on pert CRT, but if the insertion site 
isn't stable, well, then that's a problem. So, uh, and, and, and I guess the last question of this, because I want to talk about you, the, the whole pilot thing. The last question is going to be when you're w- working with these patients, how much of the, the patient's opinion of like, I, I think I need to kind of slow down, whether they tell you that or give the hand signal factors in with the criteria to stop. You know what I mean? Are you kind of like, let's push, let's push, or it's kind of like, all right, I feel better. How are you? Are you a, a softy or do you kind of push them a little bit? <laughs> I push them and I need, you know what my, if I don't push them just up to their limit, I'm doing a disservice, right? Like if I have a session and let's say we get them sitting edge of bed and we do some leg kicks and I'm yep. like, all right, cool. You know, like this has been 20 minutes. Good. Like let's lay down, (laughs) but that patient could have stood, even though that would have pushed them up and near their limit. I left something on the table and my goal is to not leave something on the table. There's plenty of time for them to recover, right? They're they're laying in bed. There's plenty of time for them to recover (laughs) during the day. And so that's to me, the fascinating part about practice in that setting is using the data that's presented to push them. Right. And so I, I joke every time I come out of a room, you know, uh, with a, a patient who has a swan line in, you know, I have this huge smile on my face and I'm like, I love it when somebody has a swan line because the physiology is right there. Right. Yep. I can, I can push them. I can watch that MVO2 just start to go down and down and down. And then I'm like, I think it's time to stop. And you look at the patient <laughs> like, uh-huh. Right. And then we sit and rest. And it comes right back up. And once it starts getting back to, to their baseline, I'm like, you're ready, aren't you? And they're like, yeah, let's go. It's so cool to just see the physiology in real time. And so, you know, if there's a patient with an arterial line and central venous pressure and MVO2, and especially if they got a VAD, yeah, um, you know, where I can see their flows and their pulsatility index, I have all the data about their hemodynamic performance to which I feel like I can push them the hardest, right? Cause I know where their limits are cause their physiology is telling me, you know, so that on those days when I'm, when I'm off the unit and, or maybe I'm not even on one of the cardiovascular or pulmonary floors and there's not even telemetry in the room, like I freak out <laughs> cause I don't, I don't have the numbers. I gotta, I gotta push you know, I got to deliberately get a blood pressure and I got to run around and find a pulse oximeter. So, um, yeah, having the physiology right there, um, really enables you to, to know where the limit is and bring them right up to that limit. You know, this is a great time for the pivot because, you know, just the way you talked about physical therapy, applying the physiology, mentioning these hemodynamic parameters that probably no one followed, the central venous sat, you know, I mean, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, all these things you just kind of mentioned. I mean, where do you have time to do this new hobby? And where do you have the passion left to do this new hobby? Because you just left it all on the floor. So my question is, (laughs) why did you decide to become a pilot? And and what do you love about doing it? So I grew up in in Tucson and there's a a Air Force base there that's a major, still is a major A-10 training base. And so I grew up with fighter planes overhead all day long. It's all I've ever known. And, you know, I, I don't even remember how old I was when my dad took me to the first air show because that Air Force base put on a rock and air show every year. And um, 
Like I was just hooked and you don't know why, like you don't know why you just know this is what I want to do. And so, you know, I, all the TV shows, right. Blue thunder, airwolf, <laughs> um, movies like iron Eagle, like I'm hooked at that point. And then of course, Top Gun comes out, right? And it's it's gasoline on the fire. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm going to be a pilot, right? Except and but for, um, mm -hmm. you know, high school and swimming and my shoulders and anatomy and physiology that fortunately derailed those plans um, at that point because after first semester of college, um, I ended up needing glasses. And so okay. if I had done the Air Force Academy route at that time, like there's no accommodation for glasses, like you're done. Wow. Um, wow. You know, you couldn't do LASIK and all that stuff. So okay. it was very, um, I feel like there's some, some divine intervention, right. That led me in the right direction because the other direction would have come to a screeching halt at that point, you know, but of course you don't let go of that passion that's there. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, just once I finally got to a place in life where I'm like, you know what, I could, I could do this. Like I have enough money that I could start doing this. And I don't really have the time, but you know, my wife's ready to support me in this. And so I just sort of started out getting my private pilot's license. I'm like, okay, cool. That's all I want to do. I just want to do that. Well, then you're like, oh man, I kind of want to do my instrument rating because flying in the clouds like that, that's what I want to do, right? That's <laughs> clouds are mother nature come to life. Like that's meteorology and to be in the weather, right? With an aircraft <laughs> is what I want to do. So I got my instrument rating and and then it had, I didn't really do anything new with flying and I wasn't flying a whole lot, you know, but as you start moving along in your career, feeling more comfortable with what you're doing in your career and your kids get older, you know, you start having a little bit more time. And so I'm like, Hmm, let me do my commercial pilot's license. And then wow. huh, maybe I want to become a flight instructor. And then, well, I'm a flight instructor. I should probably become an instrument instructor. <laughs> so like, it just starts compounding itself, but they're not separate things, right? I, I don't feel like it's, I do my career and I do my flying and there's no overlap in that time and that mental effort and that energy. They are fully synergistic. And time I spend in flying is time that I gain insights into my teaching and my clinical practice. So they're just, they're just naturally intertwined. So the, you, you, you kind of like led me into my next question, which is, how did you start making the connections between your practice and, you know, being a physical therapist and flying? And I do like what you said right before I asked you the question, which is, hey, that's your time to when you're up there to think and make you a better researcher or physical therapist. But how do you connect the two almost opposite ends of the spectrum on the outside and bring it all together nicely in the inside? Yeah, I think when I first started really seeing the interaction between those two things was with simulation. So at Grand Valley State University, I've been blessed to have probably one of the more cutting edge leading simulation centers that as we were just developing this simulation center, I was an early adopter and we had to do some cool things. And, um, you know, it was sort of one of the earlier uh, people to write about simulation for the acute care setting for physical therapy, because it just made sense, right? Because Flight training simulator time is huge, right? The more time that you can spend on the simulator to get the reps in, to make mistakes in a safe environment is huge. And I'm like, well, that's what I'm doing in simulation with my students, right? So simulation, I think, was for sure the gateway 
to that. And then, of course, as I started getting into preparing for my flight instructor certificate, then it, then it's in your face, right? Now I'm learning about the fundamentals of instruction from an FAA perspective. But I'm like, well, this this is learning is learning, right? And this yeah. all this overlap. And for some reason, learning about teaching and learning through flying was way more engaging than learning about learning and teaching through PT and some other things that I'd done in my PhD program. Like it just, it clicked, right? And, you know, once again, once something clicks for you and you get that spark of enthusiasm, you know, the sky's the limit on that stuff. So. Well, you know, even though sky's the limit, I'll tell you what's the limit is the 24 hour solar day that we live in. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you liked that. So I mean, my question to you is, I mean, talk a little bit about, you know, work-life balance. I mean, it's, I think it's really hard what you do already uh, combining and you have beautiful kids, uh, you have a wonderful wife. Uh, How do you make all this work now? It's hard, right? And to say that I got that balance right, I don't know that I would say that. You know, it is hard. And I think my family has made sacrifices to let me pursue kind of all the things that I've that I've had the opportunity to be involved with. So I don't know that I got it right. But I would also just say that everybody needs leisure, right? Just a part of health and well-being is you have to have leisure time. But define leisure time. Like leisure time for some people is truly like just vegging out on the couch watching TV. For other people, it's just reading books. Uh, Other people, it's golf. Um, you know, I've just always been wired not to be busy, but to be engaged, right? Or productive. Can I say, can I use that word? Can I use that word for you? I look at you as productive. So, you know, even though from an external perspective, it looks like I don't have any downtime, it is my leisure, right? Like having, having autonomy and self-determination is huge. And so if having the opportunity to do a lot of flying and so, you know have so many cool opportunities in flying that's you know self fulfillment in in being able to exercise my autonomy and self determination so you know that is leisure even though it's you know yeah i don't have a i don't have time that i'm just sitting around you know relaxing in that sense but it's relaxing in a different sense so well, you know, let me ask, I'm going to throw in a curveball and ask one more question before I, you know, I do my, my closing and everything, which is what was one of the more scarier moments when you're up in the plane? I got to know. You mean, there is a moment where I'm, I'm imagining there's no one around you. No one's got your back. You don't have goose behind you. You know what I mean? <laughs> I want to give you a Top Gun analogy, but so was there a moment where you were like, I don't know, were you, were you scared that no one's there? Did you have a scary moment? No, not too many scary moments because this, the saying in aviation goes, you're going to use your amazing uh, decision-making skills to not have to use your amazing pilot skills, right? So, oh, nice. <laughs> so, you know, if you're doing risk management right, you're not putting yourself in those situations. I've been, knock on wood, fortunate enough to not have an engine failure in flight, mm-hmm. um, although I train to it. Uh, mentally and on the simulator and we do it in check rides all the time so that, you know, if it happens, you know, I just go on brainstem power and do what I need to do to, to make that a survivable event. Um, but I will say the, probably the one time that I was, was really starting to get nervous was I was flying 
to Marquette up in the UP okay. with some friends to go rock climbing. And there was a, a, a problem in the fuel vent developed. And so basically, like as you go up to altitude, right, lower pressure, and as you're taking fuel out of the fuel tank, you've got to replace the space in the fuel tank with air. And that's what the fuel vent does. Oh, I see. Well, good description. All right. Yeah. Well, the fuel vent was clogged. And so the engine wasn't able to draw fuel from that fuel tank. Oh, boy. Um, and so as we're going across the UP and dude, there's nothing there, right? It's trees. <laughs> it's trees to the horizon in every direction. And maybe there's a dirt road every now and then. And so I'm watching the fuel gauges and I'm like, why is it going down on this one? And why isn't it coming out of that tank? Yeah. Um, so although I flight plan to have plenty of fuel, I wasn't going to end up having as much fuel as I thought. Okay. And so I, I was starting to get nervous toward the end and it was fine, you know? And then of course, on the way back, we planned a fuel stop, you know, so that, you know, in case that happened again, we were fine and, and whatever, but you know, that was one time and that was fairly early on too, in my flying career that I, it, so that one, that one got my, my heart rate up of um, <laughs> toward the end. So. Well, all right. So, you know, it's just amazing. You know, I said, we're going to catch up. I mean, we almost filled up the hour because I just love talking to you so much. So I just want to know this. I mean, what are your goals in the future, Mike? I mean, I look at you, we catch up every so often. I'm always proud of you. And, um, what what is there left? You know what I mean? Um, are, are you going to be the first person who is the physical therapist to do PT on the moon, but flies the rocket up to the moon too? I mean, what else can you do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, what I, I've always just sought those things that I was passionate about and have known myself well enough to know that when a door opens, if that's a doorway I want to go through. I haven't truly done a lot of planning and plotting of, yep, I want to do that door and I want to do that door and I want to do that door. I try to just be happy in the moment, you know, just do my best at whatever I'm doing and be passionate about it. And, you know, doors just sort of open when you're doing that. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. So we'll have to <laughs> I have to redo this. Oh, are you doing a plug? You're doing a plug for another podcast down the line? Yeah, you, right. Yeah, you know, five or 10 years, right? I mean, <laughs> people will forget this one by then. <laughs> I, I highly doubt that. But let me, let me just say this, is that, you know, as we draw to a close, you know, oh yeah, if anyone wants to hear more about you or what you do or physical therapy, uh, is there like a, um, where can they find you? And you just through Grand Valley or... Yeah, Grand Valley State University. Um, you know, if they look in the uh, PT department and yeah. find my my contact info and some other bio info, and I'm, you know, happy to to chat with people. I'm not on social media, so like, I, I'm a horrible guest. <laughs> That's fact, so funny. Don't I'm really that. glad that you didn't ask me because you're probably like, you know, it's great when I have guests and they got Twitter handles and you know all that stuff because then they can help promote the episode. And I'm really a dud from that standpoint because the only promotion from me on this is going to be me emailing a link to my friends. So, well, <laughs> so I apologize you, in advance. Yeah, don't even say that, God. but you know, <laughs> as I, as I, as I close this, let me just say that you are truly, you know, one of the role models who made me who I was. And every time I get a chance to talk to you for research, when I think about where I started and, you know, the motivation to do these 
awesome projects that some we saw to fruition, some we didn't. I just have the best memories of you. And I just want you to know that. Oh, man. And I have to say, too, I, I and I hope you're some of your former um, well, and current uh, residents and fellows are listening to this. And when I say this, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, that's it. That's Raj, right? Your ability to take really complex concepts and break them down into digestible, meaningful bites is something that I picked up from you early on. And I'm like, oh man, this, this is how I want to teach, right? I want to go find the, the core principles of something. I want to give them a framework that they can use for understanding a given concept. Um, and, and I learned that from you and, and that sort of has been fundamental in, in how I approach teaching. So I, I just want to say like, you know, you, you showed me early on, like, oh, this, this is how to really bring energy and quality to, to education. So Aww. thanks, man. Well, no, that was the best ending right there. And everyone, thank you for listening to the Dr. Raj podcast today. I hope everyone has motivation to take their passions to the next level and stay tuned next week for the Dr. Raj podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Mm-hmm.